passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. While that video was playing, uh, one of my uh, kids just said, man, I wish, or I miss Crosswinds kids um, already. And uh, it's, um, it, it's such a good ministry um, uh, to the, the kids of our congregation. So um, thank you, even though he's walked away. Um, thank you to Stephen and, and to all of our volunteers. Um, this morning, uh, we're going to continue our time in 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel 13 this morning. As you're turning there, um, I kind of just want to uh, start by um, reminding us of something that we looked at several weeks ago in this book, a theme that we saw from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2. Um, it'll, I think, help us understand our chapter this morning, this passage we're looking at. So all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, um, at the beginning of this book, we're introduced to this family of Eli. Eli is the high priest, and his sons are wicked. Uh, his sons want nothing to do with God. They actually uh, take um, and abuse the, their position as kind of the junior priests, um, and they have no care for the things of God. And um, while Eli doesn't really necessarily approve of what they're doing, he also doesn't um, think it's as big enough of, this, of an issue to, to stop his sons. And so um, we get to the end of chapter 2, and we see this. Uh, God's perspective on Eli's inaction and then the action of Eli's sons. It says this, chapter 2, verse 29, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves in the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? So in other words, as we were looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2 several months ago, uh, we saw that Really, for, for us, our actions, whether we realize it or not, our actions make a statement about God and his value to us one way or another. That's true of Eli's sons. They saw their position as the junior priest just as something to take advantage of, to extort to their own ends. It was also true of Eli. He didn't think it was worth the trouble. It wasn't worth the awkwardness of addressing this with his sons, and so he decides to go ahead and just let it slide. And in both cases, Eli's sons as well as Eli were making a declaration uh, uh, through their actions about what they thought God was worth. How glorious God was or how really inglorious God was by their actions. And I think that's a helpful reminder to us this morning as we consider 1 Samuel chapter 13. This is the first of three chapters that show us the downfall of Saul's reign. So King Saul, the, the leader of, of Israel, the king of Israel, over the next three chapters, we'll see how he falls and how God takes away the kingdom from him. And as we look at the heart of our passage this morning, verses 8 through 14, the, the heart of this passage, we will see Samuel has some very harsh words to say to Saul. And it would be easy for us to see that and, and conclude, man, God and, and Samuel are being a little bit too harsh. They're being unreasonable here. And that's why it's important for us to keep in mind this principle from 1 Samuel chapter 2. That our actions, whether they're very large actions or very small actions, make a value statement about God and His glory. 
So as we consider this passage, I want you to ask and consider, wrestle with, have at the back of your mind, what are Saul's actions saying about God and his glory? Now, just a bit of a heads up. As we get to the end of chapter 13, you're going to notice that this is a bit of a cliffhanger. We're going to leave you hanging until next week. Uh, 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 14, talk about this battle between Saul and the Philistines. And so we'll get to the rest of the story next week, or honestly, just read it after the service. I encourage you to do that beforehand. But we're going to stop right in the middle of the story itself because there's a lot for us to consider about what God is teaching us through this passage. You'll notice this passage, uh, chapter 13, breaks into three parts. First, we have uh, this, this build up to the heart of the passage, then the heart of the passage, and then finally, this look at the peril that Israel is in. So we're going to ho- go ahead and jump into God's Word, but let's pray uh, before we do that. Please pray with me. Father, as we approach your Word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us as your church. We, um, as we're considering these words that you gave to, to Saul, we ask that you would help us to rest in the fact that you have given us an even greater gift, not just that you've spoken uh, to, to a man like Saul through Samuel, but that you've spoken in the words of the scriptures. And indeed, you still speak to us today. And so we ask that you would help us to be a people who respond to the message of your word uh, with obedience, that even as Jesus tells his disciples to pick up their crosses daily, Uh, to follow him daily. We ask that you would help us through your spirit, uh, that you would enable us to walk the hard path of obedience just as you reveal to us in your word. God, we ask that you would speak to us now as we jump into this passage through your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I mentioned that we kind of have a a build-up to the heart of our passage found in verses 1 through 7. This is kind of setting the stage, showing us why there is a war in the first place. There's this war between Israel and Philistia. Why is there a war? Before we get to that, we're going to look at the most, one of, probably the most perplexing verse in the entire Bible, and that is verse 1 of chapter 13, introducing us to the reign of Saul. It says this, Saul lived for one year... And then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, and then we have the rest of the sentence picks up in verse 2. Now, if some of you have uh, a new international version of the Bible, a different translation, that was, by the way, that was the um, English Standard Version from 2016. Some of you might have the NIV, and it looks a little different, or maybe very different. It says this, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. It gets even more confusing. This past week, I I pulled out a Bible off of my shelf um, that I I actually haven't used for quite a while. It's one of my first ESV uh, Bibles. It it was from 2001, and it says something completely different. It says this, Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, dot, dot and two years over Israel. So what exactly do we make of this verse? And I don't want to spend a a ton of time on it because it has nothing to do or or has no um, weight or or doesn't change the the focus of this passage. But you might come across it this week as you're studying this passage. You might come across it in your life groups. And so I just want to give a 30-second overview of what's going on here. So the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that our, our Bibles are translated from, literally says this. Saul was a, was a son of a year, 
when he became king and for dot, 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 and two years he reigned over Israel. So you can see this is a, a very confusing passage. It seems to be saying, if we just read it at face value, Saul was a year old when he became king and he reigned over Israel for two years. Of course, we know that can't be the case. If we look at the rest of, of 1 Samuel, especially 1 Samuel 9, 10, 11, 12, and then getting into 13. And for some of you already, your eyes are glazing over, and that's okay. Others of you, this is really fascinating, and you wish I had just spend the rest of the time talking about this. Whatever we decide, whatever your translation decides, it bears no weight on this passage. So I don't want to get into it, but what I did do in your Bible app sermon notes, I put together a little chart that you can find in there that lays out the, the, the sources for these different translations, the reasons behind uh, these different translations, uh, the positives, the arguments for these different translations, as well as uh, some, some drawbacks to each of these different translations. Um, so if, you, if you're interested in that, go ahead and check that out. I'm going to actually suggest a hybrid translation here, actually, uh, between the ESV 2016 and the NIV. It says, I, I'm, I'm not completely convinced, but this is kind of the way that I make sense of this verse uh, as we get into this passage. Something like this, Saul lived for one year, and then he became king, and he reigned for 42 years over Israel. So the first half of this verse, and, and according to this, is looking back at chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, really, and saying, okay, all of that between the time when Saul was privately anointed as king to the time where he was publicly leading the people of Israel in victory against the Ammonites, that was about a year. And that's what chapter 13, verse 1 is telling us. And that's the first half of this verse. Then we're given this overview of his reign in the second half of this verse. That means that some unknown amount of time has, has passed now between chapter 12 and chapter 13. We're going to see now Saul has a son. His name is Jonathan, who is one of his leaders in his army. Some would say he is the second in command for Saul's army. The Philistines are once again oppressing the people of Israel. They're a menace for the people of Israel. One of the things that we've seen as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel is that the Philistines serve as a bit of a, a thermometer showing us what Israel's relationship with God is like. So when things are really good and the people of Israel are, are close to God, they're following after him, we read stuff like this in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. But when Israel is not following the Lord, we read things like this, like under Eli and his sons. It says this, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. So with that in mind, consider what verse 2 and verse 3 of chapter 13 tell us. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. 
So here we, we get the scene is being set. We, we see that Saul has this standing army. And he splits this army between his command and his son Jonathan's command. Uh, two-thirds are under Saul's command. A third are under Jonathan's command. Jonathan's uh, battalion is stationed at Gibeah. That's the capital of Israel under Saul. It's Saul's hometown. Saul is in Michmash. And we're going to use a lot of maps this morning, so I, I think it's really helpful for us uh, to understand this passage. The blue here shows us the kingdom of Israel under Saul. While down in the southwest um, corner, we have the, the Philistines and where they are located. Now, all of this, you can see, um, centers around, uh, you might be able to see there's a, a couple different communities or, or towns that are named here in the middle of the map. It might be a little small, so let's go ahead and, and go to the next picture. It'll show us uh, specifically of what is taking place. Black I've said that that's Saul's army. We have red representing the Philistines, and Jonathan's army is represented in blue. So you see Saul and his people are um, camped, and, and they're stationed at Michmash. That's a city right there on the top. Uh, we have uh, Saint, uh, Jonathan's army is located in Geba at the bottom, and then right in between them, the Philistines have taken over this place called Geba. Now, the distance between Michmash and uh, Gibeah is about five miles. So that gives you a little bit of, of perspective of, of kind of the distances we are working with here. And before we even get into the events of chapter 13, we should pause and say, hold up. The Philistines control a key city or key place in the region or in the territory, in the kingdom of Israel right now. So what does that tell us? about Israel's relationship with God. Here's what I think is taking place, or the context of, of chapter 13 this morning. The Philistines in Israel, they've entered into this uneasy truth, truce. The Philistines are militarily superior. We're going to see that very clearly throughout the course of chapter 13. And they've set up a garrison. This garrison is located about three miles away from Israel's capital in, Gib in Gib uh, Gibeah. And Saul is allowed to keep an army, he's allowed to keep the appearance of being a king at this time, but everyone really knows who is in charge. And that's the context as we jump into chapter 13. And Jonathan, Saul's son, decides to take matters into his own hands, and he decides to, if you read the context, it kind of sounds like this guerrilla warfare is taking place here, and he defeats the people of, um, of the Philistines that are stationed at Geba. Let's go ahead and show up our, our next map here. You see the troops moving, and so now Jonathan controls Geba. Uh, he continues to control Gibeah, uh, and the, the Philistines are nowhere to be found, and yet the Philistines hear of it, and Saul uses this as a rallying cry for the people of Israel and says, hey, I want everyone. We're going to finally throw off the chains of our Philistine overlords. Let's go ahead and gather together, finally overthrow the Philistines, and so he begins to assemble an army, but he does it at, at Gilgal over to the east, and he leaves Michmash undefended. And this will come into play here in a little bit. So we have the, the Israelites, they, they control Gibeah, they control Geba, but they don't control Michmash anymore. 
Now, I, I think not only maps are helpful here, but also just a picture of what the terrain is like is really helpful for understanding what's going on here. Let's go ahead and take a, a picture or a look at this picture right here. This is a picture facing west. So it's, it's facing from the Jordan River west. And you can see right here at the very bottom, you have Gilgal is down here. And then way up at the very top, I don't know if you can read it, but we have Michmash and Geba are located. And so now, positive, Saul is assembling an army in the plains, and that's a really good place to do it. It's going to be a lot easier to, to gather people together at Gilgal near the Jordan River. The negative is he lets go of Michmash, and, and we'll see that Michmash is actually one of the most uh, strategic locations in all of the central part of Israel because it controls one of the primary north-south routes in central Israel. So that's where we are this morning. Verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of, on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beit Avon. So in response to Jonathan's attack, his surprise attack, the Philistines gathered together in this stunning show of force. And don't get bogged down in the details of, of 30,000. Some translations say 3,000, which would you know, fit the, the number of, of horsemen that's mentioned here. The key is, at the end of us, it says, troops like the numbers of sand on the seashore. In other words, the Philistine army is so large that it can't be counted. And it's not just large. It's extremely unnecessarily excessive. Let's go ahead and show this next picture here. This will be a close-up of Geba, where Jonathan's army is located, and Michmash, where the Philistines now occupy. This is a very hilly territory. Uh, you see there's this massive ravine in between Michmash and Geba. There's only one straight place, this pass between Geba and Michmash. They're only about a mile, just a little over a mile, separated from one another. And notice that terrain. Chariots are not going to do any good in hill country like this. Chariots do best in flat plains. And you could actually argue that bringing chariots into mountains like this would be a hindrance to your military effectiveness. But what the Philistines are doing is abundantly clear. The people of Israel have rebelled against their rule, and the people of, Phil, uh, of the Philistines will not tolerate it. And so they come out in mass, in force, to show that any idea, any notion of a free Israel will be squashed, and it will be squashed with extreme prejudice. The Philistines want to crush Israel, and they want to do it without lifting a finger. Can you imagine being Jonathan at this moment? Jonathan, again, is stationed in Geba here to the side of this picture. You still hold Geba, and yet a mile away across this ravine, you can see all of these Philistines. They're coming together. This army, larger than you can count, is gathering for war. And you struck the Philistines as an act of faith that God is going to deliver his people, and yet God and his help are seeming a little bit more and more and more, I don't know, is he actually going to come through for us? 
as more and more chariots, more and more troops pour into Michmash. I mentioned the Philistines want to squash any sort of rebellion against them without lifting a finger, and that's actually what starts to happen in verses 6 and 7. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some, Phili- or some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So more and more Philistines are arriving here for war, and Israelites begin to desert. And some find caves in the hills where they can hide. Others lower themselves into these holes in the ground. Others find tombs where they can hide in. Others go and hide in cisterns. These are just man-made holes in the ground to collect rainwater. Anywhere they can hide, the, the Israelites begin to hide. Others decide to go even further. They go to Gilgal with Saul, and then they flee from there across the Jordan River and run away the opposite direction, heading east to get away from the Philistines. And you can see here, the Philistines, they come in from the west. Now they control Michmash, and the people of Israel, they begin to flee to the east. And we're left asking here in verse 7, how on earth can Israel hope to match the might of the Philistines? I imagine that Saul is asking that same question. That's where we get to the heart of our passage this morning, picking up in verse 8. He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So here is Saul, He's waiting at Gilgal for seven days, and yet the more time that goes on, the more time that passes, the more people who have gathered at Gilgal with him decide to leave. They decide to flee, and still Saul waits. What's he waiting for? Verse 8 gives us a hint. It says he's waiting for the time appointed by Samuel. So apparently, at some point, there was a discussion between Saul and Samuel, these instructions from Samuel to Saul giving him guidance from God that he is supposed to wait for Samuel for seven days at Gilgal, and then he will be given further instruction. So what's this referring to? We can see from chapter 10, years earlier, years before this moment. Remember Saul, he's appointed king, he's anointed king in private by Samuel, and at the beginning of chapter 10, we're given this list of all of these very, very, very specific signs to confirm to Saul that he is going to be the king. And all of these signs culminate in the Holy Spirit coming upon Saul when he arrives back home at Gibeah, and Saul is um, able to prophesy. But before that moment, notice what the text says, chapter 10. After that, so after some of these signs, all right, After those signs, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, which literally means the hill of God, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. So that's the first half of uh, of verse 5. Go ahead and and skip to verse 7 and 8. Now, when these signs meet you, which also includes being empowered by the Holy Spirit, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. 
So several years before this moment in chapter 13, Saul, as a part of being anointed as the king, he encounters a garrison garrison of the Philistines here in the middle of the country of Israel in, in this hill of God, an unknown location. He's on his way back to Gibeah. When he gets to Gibeah, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and... God asks through Samuel, asks Saul to, quote, do what your hand finds to do for God is with you. Now this phrase, do what your hand finds to do, is a phrase used in the book of Judges to refer to acts of war, to attack. So the implication of chapter 10 is that when Saul is overcome with the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul, one of the first things that he is supposed to do is he is supposed to lead the people of Israel in victory against the Philistines, all the way back in chapter 10. There's only one problem. You read through chapter 10, and Saul does nothing of the sort. He doesn't attack the garrison of the Philistines. He doesn't go to Gilgal because none of this ever takes place. So what's happening? As far as I can tell, Saul fails to live up to God's commands through Samuel at the very beginning of his reign. Moments, the day he is anointed king, Saul fails to do what God asks him to do. God wants Saul to attack the Philistines and then go to Gilgal and wait seven days for Samuel. And yet Saul never does it. And now we get to chapter 13 years later, and we can tell based off of the context of this, of this chapter that there's been a discussion that's taken place between Saul and Samuel about that moment all the way back in chapter 10. Saul, you were supposed to do this, and you did not do it. And this is running through Saul's mind here. When his son Jonathan attacks a garrison of the Philistines, Saul retreats to Gilgal, and Saul, I'm sure he's got this going on in the back of his mind, this failure from years, years earlier, and let's give credit where credit's due. Here is Saul, and he knows he failed to keep God's commands then, and so now he seems to be resolved to do it. It's like, all right, I, 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 I didn't do it then, but I'm going to do it now. But there's another problem. Time continues to go on, and as more and more people leave, Saul's resolve to keep the commands of God weakens and weakens and weakens. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. So time is running out. The seventh day is coming close to an end, and Samuel still hasn't arrived yet, and so Saul looks around, he looks at, sees all of his army is beginning to desert him, and he decides to take matters into his own hands. And surely God will understand, right? I think it's worth noting that just because our text says he offered the burnt offering, that doesn't necessarily mean that Saul took it upon himself to act like a priest, to be the one who literally offered up the animal. 
If you look at the beginning of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 1, and you look at the first three verses, the same language is used to refer to all of Israel. It says, if anyone from Israel wants to offer up a burnt offering, he must offer up a burnt offering and gives instructions. So we look at the Bible, and sometimes when it says, he offered up a burnt offering, it's not specifically saying that he is acting like a priest, this person's acting like a priest, but instead he is just making that sacrifice, giving up this type of animal. And we look at chapter 14, a chapter after this in 1 Samuel, and you'll notice in verse 3 that one of the people with Saul is a priest. So, so I think that the focus here isn't that Saul is acting like a priest when he shouldn't, which would be a problem. It's something different instead. And so we get to the end of this chapter, or the end of this, this phrase, and, or this, this idea that, that Saul is offering up this burnt offering, and then Samuel shows up. And, and Saul clearly doesn't feel like he's done anything wrong, and so he, he runs out to greet him, and literally, the text says, it runs out to bless Samuel. Pick up in verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So just imagine this moment. Saul hears that Samuel has finally come, and so he runs out to greet him, runs out to ask, hey, where you been, man? And before he can even get that out of his mouth, Samuel cries out, what have you done? So where have you been? No, what have you done? And Saul goes instantly on the defensive. You can tell by how wordy his response is here. He shifts the blame onto three other people or three groups of people. First, he says, well, the people are, are leaving me. What else was I supposed to do? Second, he says, hey, Samuel, you were late. Where you been, man? And then third and finally, well, the Philistines, they're coming. In other words, Saul justifies his actions here. He looks at his situation and concludes that his, his hands are tied. He assumes the Philistines are coming. He wants to make sure that he has God's favor. He's, got, he's done the right rituals to make sure that God is on his side. And so he offers up this burnt offering before Samuel arrives. And here we catch a view of what Saul actually thought of when he thought of God. He's just like the Israelites back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. They thought they could bring the ark out as a way to manipulate God to, to be on their side. Now the method is different. There's no ark. But now we have burnt offerings. The heart is the same coercing God to do what we want rather than actually submitting to God and his rule. Notice Samuel's words in verse 13 and 14. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So here we see 
because Saul and his actions go against the commands of God. He loses the kingdom. And in essence, Samuel calls Saul a fool because he has not kept the commands of God. And if we don't understand this moment, then this passage can look like it's being incredibly unfair to Saul. I mean, just put yourself in Saul's position here. What would would you have me do, God? People are, are, are fleeing. Samuel, nowhere to be found. The Philistines are breathing down my neck. I just want to make sure that, that we have your blessing on our action because we know we can't do this without you. So here it goes. Let's go ahead and just do this. My hands are tied. And this is an important question for us to consider because Samuel calls Saul's actions here foolish. So what makes them foolish? What, what gives so much weight to this moment. I think the key is back in chapter 10 with those original instructions that were given to Saul right after he became anointed as king. It says this in verse 8, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days shall you wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So what does this verse say that that Saul is supposed to do? Well, first it says you're supposed to go to Gilgal. And second, you're supposed to wait for seven days to see Samuel show up. Now, what does this verse say that Samuel will do when he gets there? Well, first it says he will come, he'll offer burnt offerings, he'll offer these peace offerings. But second, and probably most important for us to understand the significance of chapter 13, is that he will show Saul what to do. And we have to grasp that phrase right there to understand the significance of this moment, the significance of of God's words to Saul, taking the kingdom away from him. Because it's saying in, in that verse where he says, wait until I get there and then I will show you what to do. It's stating that Saul, you might be the king, but you're not a king like the nations. You don't get to be the one who makes the decisions. You don't get to rule autonomously. You are not the final say, the final authority in Israel. You might be the king of Israel, But you are ultimately subservient to the king of glory, to God himself. That's what we saw from from God's plan for kingship all the way back in Deuteronomy 17, right? That the king is not supposed to be this autonomous ruler who gets to do whatever they want, but instead is meant to point people to God himself. But what does Saul do here in chapter 13? Well, we see that he's already made his decision about what he's going to do. That's very clear. Verse 12, he's seeking the Lord's favor. He's not seeking the Lord's direction or guidance. He's not saying, God, what are you going to do? He said, it's saying, I've already made my decision. I just want God on my side. So Saul here, he's already decided on war. There's, There's no waiting until Samuel, and by extension, God himself shows Samuel what to do. He's saying, you know what, I'm the king, and and I know best. I I get to make the decision here. 
And yes, it would be nice if God came along for the ride, but you know what? I already have the destination in mind. I'm already behind the steering wheel. The keys are in the ignition. Let me go ahead and just throw the door open on the passenger side, and God, you can hop in, but you're not touching the steering wheel because I've already decided where we are going. You see the weight of Saul's failure here in this moment? It might seem like this relatively small infraction, but it reveals a heart that is completely at odds with God and his plans. And I think that's true for us as well. Even the smallest of actions can reveal our hearts. That's what we see in Scripture, right? Moses strikes a rock and is denied entry into the promised land. Ananias and Sapphira decide to keep a little bit of money to themselves and are struck dead. Humanity loses paradise because they eat a piece of fruit. The smallest actions show our heart's disposition. And for Saul, by not waiting for God to direct him, by not submitting himself to God's lordship, but instead remaining firmly planted on the throne, the decision maker for Israel. He's rejecting God. He's rejecting God's plans for a king. He's rejecting God's will, and God wants nothing to do with a king who doesn't get the most important part of being a king. And as I consider Saul's actions here, I'm just reminded of the opening words of David in Psalm 14. Psalm 14 says this, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Notice that that psalm doesn't say, The fool goes around telling everyone there is no God. This isn't talking about atheism. It's talking about functional atheism. It's talking about people who live as though God does not exist, as though God does not reign, as that God and his commands don't really matter. You want to know what a fool is according to the Bible? It's a person who might proclaim that there is a God, a person who says they want God involved in their lives to some degree, a person who wants to make sure they have God's blessing on their plans, but there's no chance that God will ever be the one who is the king over their lives. They are the ones who make the decisions as though there is no God, certainly not a God like the God of the Bible, a God who is king, a king who has the gall to remind and command people how they should live because he is the king. Saul is a fool. And we are fools when we follow in his footsteps. Maybe giving God a sliver of of our lives, but always remaining completely in control of our lives. The fool says in his or her heart, there is no God and lives accordingly 
And we are fools when we say in our heart there is no God, when we ignore his commands, when we don't give him full control of our lives, when we are just like Saul and we choose the practical rather than the hard obedience of faith, when we make excuses for our actions, when we conclude, you know what, my situation is different and God will understand, when we claim that God and his commands, they don't actually apply to me in my situation, when we see God just as this add-on to our lives rather than the very king of our lives and in all of these when we do those things we are just like Saul and we are fools Saul is a fool and all too often we are too this passage ends with a cliffhanger showing the peril facing Israel and Saul specifically. We'll, we'll consider this more next week, but just briefly consider the words of, of verses 15 through 23. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed at Geba, of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beit Haran. And another company toward, turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords or spears. Spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle, and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on that day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. I said, this describes the peril facing Israel and Saul. Just consider five observations. First one is this. They are abandoned by the prophet of the Lord, Samuel. Verse 15, Samuel leaves and we have no idea where he goes. Although this starts because Saul won't wait and listen to the word of God spoken through the prophet, now he has exactly what he wished. And we have no idea where the prophet has gone. You want to be a king who rules unilaterally? unilaterally, you don't want to follow God's commands, fine, here you go. That's the first peril. Second, Saul's army has basically deserted him. That's also in verse 15. He breaks God's commands in order to stop people from fleeing from him, and they leave anyway. He gets to Gibeah and then Geba, and he only has 600 men. There's a lesson here, because oftentimes we rationalize breaking God's commands as a form of wisdom or practical reasons or because our situation is different and it doesn't work out and we're left in a worse situation than if we would have walked the hard path of faith and obedience. Third, the Philistines begin to oppress Israel from their new base in Michmash. They send out bands of raiders to the north, the west, the southeast to terrorize Israel. Let's go ahead and throw that next map up that'll show where they're all headed. So the red, they're, they're, some of them are going north, some of them are going west, some are going southeast. They're going throughout the land of Israel. 
The situation has deteriorated so much that it's not just this uneasy truth, but now there's active pillaging, raiding the land, all of the death and destruction that comes with it. Fourth, Israel is ill-equipped for battle. The Philistines, probably for years, not just as a response to this moment, they've refused to allow blacksmiths in Israel so that Israel cannot properly arm their army. And so Israel now is going up against an army with the greatest military technology of the day, chariots. And the Israelites have one sword and one spear and a bunch of farm equipment. Fifth, Israel is under economic oppression. The Philistines are charging exorbitant prices to the Israelites to get their farm equipment repaired and sharpened. And because the blacksmiths are all located in Philistia, that means it's a long journey to go to the blacksmith, a day's journey there, a day's journey back, just to get things repaired. So you're losing out on your workday. And by the end of the chapter, the Philistines, they march out from Michmash to the pass between Geba and Michmash. Let's go ahead and show that final picture. So there's only one easy way to get to the Philistines or, to, or for the Philistines to get to the Israelites, and that's this pass that you can see right in the middle of the picture. And so the Israelites, they can see the Philistines from Geba toward Michmash, and now the Philistines also control the pass. Danger is on their doorstep. What hope does Israel have? Has God abandoned them? That's what we'll look at next week. But as we come to the end of this chapter, I want us to just consider what it means for us. And I think that the key to grasping the significance of this passage for you and me this morning is verse 14. In verse 14, we see these words at the very beginning. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So Saul, this man who is a king like the nations, this man who is a fool, this man who does not take into account the commands of God, is soon going to be replaced by a man after God's own heart. And this, of course, refers to David if you've read 1 Samuel. And even more so, it refers to Jesus, this greater and better king who is perfectly a man after God's own heart. And yet at the same time, this passage points us to a better king. It also has something to say about what it would mean for us to be a man or a woman after God's own heart as well. So let's consider, what would it mean? What would it look like to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? And the obvious answer, based off of chapter 13, is do the opposite of Saul, right? Just don't be Saul. Okay, check. See, if God replaces Saul with a man after his own heart, then the obvious implication is that Saul is not a man after God's own heart. And we consider the rebuke here of Saul from Samuel. We see that to not be a man after God's own heart is to be a fool. It's to live life as though God does not exist, that we don't have to obey him, we don't have to obey his commands. It's to say, you know what, my situation is different. My circumstances, God will understand. It's to say, you know what, God, feel free to hop in the passenger side, but stay off 
of the controls of my life because I'm in charge. So in other words, if, if Saul is guilty of usurping God, even in the smallest of actions, then a man or a woman after God's own heart is one who submits to him in all things, even, or maybe even especially, when things are hard. Do you want to be a man after God's own heart, men? Women, do you want to be a woman after God's own heart? You want to live a life that is completely in line with God's desire, his very heart? And hear these words revealing the very heart of God, spoken by God himself, Jesus, in the Gospel of John. He says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's it. Straightforward. Can't get any clearer than that. And that's really the message of this passage for us this morning. This is what God is seeking. This is what God is seeking. Men and women who delight to do his will. You want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? The type of person that God is seeking then delight to do his will. It doesn't matter if you are seven or 70, if you are single, married, widowed, divorced, whatever your life circumstances, you want to be a person whose life is lined up with the very heart of God. God is seeking men and women who delight to do his will. There are two paths that are before us. There's the path of the fool making excuses, adding God to our lives where it's convenient and yet we still remain firmly in control of our lives saying, you know what, God, your word doesn't really apply to me in this situation and on and on and on or this path that is near and dear to God's heart, delighting to do his will, submitting to his reign over your life in every part of your life no matter what. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Let's pray. Father, we confess that all too often Psalm 14 verse 1 describes us all too well. That all too often we live our lives as though there is no God. We ask that you would forgive us. Help us, God, to be people who delight to live according to your will, that we would be aligned with the very heart of God. Help us, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.